It's Thursday, February 27th, 2020. From KLCC News, this is the Northwest Passage. The legislative session is at a standstill as Oregon GOP lawmakers continue to boycott the cap-and-trade bill. A federal jury ruled this week that a Eugene police officer did not use excessive force when he shot and killed veteran Brian Babb in 2015. Lane County prepares for coronavirus. The number three ranked Oregon women's basketball team will play their final regular season games this weekend at home. And we bid farewell to Taylor's Bar and Grill. These stories and more on the Northwest Passage podcast. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Northwest Passage. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. I'm Morning Edition host Ani Katz. I'm Love Cross. I host Weekend Edition and Monday Morning Edition. And I'm reporter Chris Lehman. So it's great to have you all here. And Ani, it's nice to have you back after your hiatus. Thank you. Thanks. It was all for a good reason, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start, Chris, with you since you're up in Salem and have been watching what's happening with the legislative session in Salem, which right now is not very much because the Republican lawmakers have walked out. So what is... What does that mean, and what does it look like? Sure. Well, the Capitol is definitely a quieter-than-usual place right now, at least for what you'd expect during a legislative session. As you said, uh, most of the Republicans walked out this week. There were two who remained, uh, Republican Senator Tim Knope Knope, uh, from Bend and Republican Representative Sherry Held, also from Bend, that is known as a a swing uh, district area in in political terms. Uh, But the rest of them left, and that it was enough to deny the Democrats a quorum, which if you haven't been following along, a quorum is the minimum number of lawmakers you need to conduct business. And if all the Republicans, uh, save for one, uh, leave, you don't have a quorum, so they can't vote on anything, at least not to pass bills. Uh, Some of the committees are continuing to work and advance measures at the committee level, but they can't actually approve those bills on the House floor or the Senate floor. So for the time being, work at the legislature Uh, effectively speaking, has ground to a halt. And this is all over a carbon uh, reduction bill that Republicans uh, walked out on uh, last year as well. So the the issue is back, as is the tactic of leaving the Capitol. And uh, this time, nobody really knows how it's going to end. The legislative session itself has to end by March 8th, but uh, which is really not all that far away. I mean, it's next month, yes, but it's it's really uh, just over a week or so from now. So uh, it, it's kind of got everybody a little bit, um, you know, following along, uh, but also worried about other pieces of legislation because they can't vote on anything. So if you're uh, one of the universities that's looking for bonding money for construction projects, you are out of luck right now. If you are uh, somebody who advocates for homeless or foster uh, families or, uh, well, just a really long list of other things, uh, none of those bills can move either at the moment. 
Chris, will you explain why the Republicans have such a strong objection to this cap-and-trade bill? Sure. Well, I mean, the short version is they say it will harm the economy of rural Oregon, uh, to put it maybe a little more succinctly, uh, their districts. Uh, you know, what it does to the rest of Oregon perhaps is not as high on their concern list. So they say it will be costly. It will increase the cost of fuel. It will increase the cost of other goods. Um, estimates are out there 400 to 600 dollars per year per household in Oregon um, you know whether or not that that is true I mean it, it, even advocates agree that it will increase somewhat the cost of some goods so that's that's their objection to it now why they're choosing this tactic I mean certainly Republicans vote against bills um, you know they're in the minority party right now and so the majority Democrats generally control the agenda so why are they just leaving the legislature entirely as opposed to just voting no? Well, I mean, that's, uh, that is kind of the million-dollar question right now, because uh, certainly you could come back and vote no and just say, well, we tried, but they, they're saying it's a big enough issue. It, the damage, in, in their opinion, would be strong enough that it requires them to leave the Capitol, which for many of them apparently means they've left the state as well. Uh, of course, supporters of this you know, would strongly disagree that it would cause that much damage, and they would say the upside, uh, you know, for acting on climate change uh, vastly outweighs the financial impact that it might have. Chris, last year, I know there was talk about fining these legislators when they walked out. I don't think that ever happened. Have you heard anything about any admonishment or consequences to these actions? Well, they are issuing uh, very strongly worded press releases. I don't know if that counts as a consequence, but uh, the idea of, of finding them was floated last year. Uh, you are correct. That was withdrawn as, as it really seemed to uh, be something that would end up in a protracted legal battle that, that probably just at the end of the day wouldn't be really worth anyone's time or, or money to fight that fight. Um, so, of course, as far as consequences go, I mean, this is a democracy, right? And many of these, uh, well, all of the House lawmakers uh, save for those who are retiring, will be up for re-election uh, in November. Uh, many of the, the senators, the, they serve four-year terms, so some of them will be up for re-election this November as well. So that's one potential consequence. Uh, of course, there are ways to change the quorum requirement. That would require a statewide vote, which is not something you can just flip a switch and do, but that is uh, not a, a punishment for lawmakers, but rather um, changing the parameters under which uh, you know a quorum can can be denied would make it a lot harder for the minority party to deny a quorum. But yeah, in terms of uh, you know individual lawmakers, uh, Democrats have have said, well, you know maybe we should withhold their their pay somehow. Well, all of that gets very tricky uh, really quickly because we're talking about people who were elected by by members of the public. They're not simply employees that you can um, fire or or suspend or something like that. I think that uh, one of the shames about the story is that obviously it's a huge story. It's the main story of the week. It made it onto Morning Edition. Uh, our reporter, uh, Dirk Vanderhart, had a story about it. Um, and 
the story that we're talking about is that they have left. I think that um, what's interesting is that the issues that they're leaving because of are actually interesting and their constituents feel that they're valid. And uh, it's uh, I think it's unfortunate because that gets lost in the conversation. The coverage is really just, they fled the state. What are we going to do? Um, you know, where I think that, you know, it, we tend to not talk as much about like what we're doing right now, which is why they're leaving, why yeah. they feel like, you know, they need to make sure that this bill doesn't pass. Right. It certainly, I mean, it's clearly a, a political stunt. I mean, now the, I'm not using that word pejoratively. Uh, some people feel as though it's it's a necessary stunt and some people think it's a an anti-democratic stunt. stunt. So, uh, but it's clearly a stunt because it's, it's not really part of the normal legislative process. Well, thanks, Chris. This is very helpful to give us a little more perspective. You're welcome. Ani, why don't you fill us in on some of the other stories that are on our on our air this week? <laughs> well, uh, this is related, actually. Um, so as Chris mentioned, if the session ends without uh, more legislation, huge sums may go unallocated until the next state budget takes effect in the summer of 2021. I read that in the Register Guard this morning. And the reason it, that it's important to especially KLCC listeners, is um, one of the few bills that did make it through the Oregon House before the boycott began was funding for the 2021 World Track and Field Championships that are going to be in Eugene next summer. Um, Until business resumes in Salem, the bill is stuck. This means that funding the track and field championships could take a huge hit. The bill would keep the state's transient lodging tax at its current rate of 1.8%. Proceeds from this would go to Travel Oregon. The state has committed $40 million towards next summer's event, but only half has been raised so far. So clearly, if they don't take, put this bill to the Senate, we have a problem. And that's just one of many bills that are stuck, as, as Chris mentioned before. Exactly. Um, so it's it's not it's <laughs> not a good situation. Not a good situation. And really, like Chris said, March eighth. That's not. I mean, it is technically next month, but we're talking next week. I mean, yeah. March eighth mm-hmm. is next Sunday, I believe. So soon. Okay. So obviously, the other main story of the week that we're all talking about is coronavirus. The CDC uh, wants Americans to prepare for the spread of coronavirus. It's not a matter of if, but when at this point. So we had KLCC's Tiffany Eckert sit down with Jason Davis, who's a Lane County Health official just to get an update on local prevention and preparedness tactics. He says the county is kind of approaching this with a three-pronged strategy for prevention. First is to make sure that medical providers have the training to respond. If they see certain signs of symptoms coupled with exposure to another corona case or that person has been to an area where there's a current outbreak of corona, then what do they do from there? Um, The second one is education on transmission and prevention. Coronavirus spreads through droplets from the mouth and nose. And third is open communication, including a weekly call with the Oregon Health Authority and representatives from every county in Oregon, meaning that if there's any appearance of anything kind of suspicious, you're going to know about it. Whether, you know, if it happens in a faraway county, you're going to find out about it in Lane County. Um, I went to the doctor, let's see, last week for a physical and definitely, you know, I mean, it's the same. They always ask you if you have, have you had a fever recently? Are you coughing at all? But now I was also asked, have you been to China in the last 14 days? Mm-hmm. So clearly that outreach is happening. And I think we're just trying to, you know, ready ourselves as best as possible. 
I read an interesting article last night on how to prepare for coronavirus in your community. And it talked a lot about um, how it's similar to preparing for any type of natural disaster to have certain supplies on hand in case, you know, you're not allowed to go out of your home or if you want to not go out of your home as much as you normally would. But the number one thing that it said, and I mentioned this to my teenage daughters this morning because it's something that we do when we walk in the door. When we walk in the door, from wherever we've been, we wash our hands. And that's what they were saying. That's the number one thing. As soon as you walk through the door of your house, go wash your hands, because that is really the way to help prevent the spread of many diseases. And it turns out that the protein that's in the coronavirus can be broken down with regular common household hand soaps as long as you wash your hands. So just an extra push for that. I mean, the flu obviously is something that kills more people than uh, this coronavirus has so far. Um, And washing your hands helps prevent the spread of that too. So just some simple common sense recommendations as well. Definitely. And I've been been washing my hands more thoughtfully, Mm. you know, because... I wash my hands a lot, but a lot of times it's just a quick, you know, soap, water, eh, I'm done. So I've been kind of taking that extra few seconds. It's to supposed to actually... be 20 seconds. Yes. You're so, so I actually, you can um, sing happy birthday to yourself twice. twice. Um, you can sing the ABCs. Um, this is what they teach uh, preschoolers, and I have little ones, so <laughs> this is this is very, you know, forward in my mind. Um, or, yeah, just counting to 20 is, is yeah, and you want to just do your backs of your hands and really just get in there. And use the friction, because exactly. that's part of it. Right. Exactly. That's yeah. what they say is the benefit of any hand sanitizer that's not necessarily just putting it on, but it's really rubbing it in there, so yeah. Um, simple pre- prevention measures that we can all take in any type of an outbreak or any type of um, common colds. I mean, all of that. So. And they're saying those masks that everybody is, of course, you know, causing all the stores to sell out of, even the N95 ones that we're supposed to use for the wildfire season for smoke and stuff, are actually really not going to prevent you from contracting coronavirus. I think other another thing to prepare Four, and this is, you know, it's obviously takes a little bit of planning, um, but like with natural disasters is making sure that you have food and water in your house in case you can't leave. I think that for me, at least, I also have this concern about supply chains being interrupted. You know, we are used to getting stuff from Mexico and China, and we don't know what the future holds. So I'm not saying you got to hoard stuff, but maybe just hoard slightly, hoard a little <laughs> bit. I don't know. <laughs> I've got a well-stocked pantry, so party at my house. We're going to your house. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're welcome to come anytime. <laughs> so also this week, uh, we saw kind of the decisions in several major cases that we've been covering now for several years at KLCC. There were three main ones that kind of came to somewhat of a conclusion. Of course, there's always appeals and stuff, but they're at, at a point where, okay, decisions have been made. So um, a federal jury decided police did not use excessive force in the death of Brian Babb, a Eugene vet with PTSD. The civil case against the city of Eugene and an EPD police officer ended earlier this week. The jury reached a unanimous verdict in less than two hours. And attorneys for the Babb estate had argued that his rights were violated when he was killed in his doorway while in a mental health crisis. He was on the phone with his therapist when he was shot and killed by police. 
In another case, a Lane County Circuit Court judge sentenced a Portland gang member to life in prison for the murder of an LCC student. The shooter's wife was given six years. Alex Oyambe Graydon was born in Nairobi, Kenya, and he was adopted as a baby. In May 2019, Regis Kindred shot and killed Graydon behind Taylor's Bar and Grill near the U of O. Uh, Kindred and his wife, Kaylee Von Foster, the driver, had been tailing a vehicle they thought belonged to a rival gang member, and this was totally a case of mistaken identity. And finally, a jury in Portland found Jeremy Christian guilty of all counts, including two counts of first-degree murder and a count of first-degree attempted murder in May 2017. Christian stabbed and killed two men and injured a third on a Portland Max light rail train. Mm-hmm. So the jury has obviously has actually been um, with the judge this week. Um, they're going over like kind of sentencing guidelines and issues. Um, so that case, there's obviously more decisions that will come from that. But um, those are the updates on those three kind of major cases that we've yeah. been keeping our eyes on. So love, you are our have become our sports reporter for women's basketball especially and gosh the ducks I mean they're just amazing. It's been quite a year. It's been quite a past couple of years for Oregon Duck women's basketball and Oregon State's had some great things going on in the last couple of years as well. But, you know, the big story this week was for Oregon senior guard Sabrina Ionescu on Monday she had a milestone evening. She surpassed 2,000 points, 1,000 assists, and 1,000 rebounds against number four Stanford. She extended her record in career triple doubles, getting her 26th on Monday. Her 25th came over the weekend. You know, so, I mean, she's just been on a tear. However, on Monday, it was extremely more interesting. That's not what I want to say. You can start over. (laughs) (laughs) Extremely. However, Monday, her accomplishments came on an emotionally difficult day. As most of you know, um, that morning she spoke at the memorial service for Kobe Bryant and his daughter Gianna, who were killed at the end of January in a helicopter crash. Um, She spoke there in front of 20,000 people at the Staples Center. Any basketball legend that you can name was there in attendance. And it was live streamed around the world. It was live streamed to the Oregon's women's basketball team who were getting ready to play Stanford that night. Um, I talked to an assistant coach. He said that they were all watching it. They all had phones, computers. He said you could have heard a pin drop in the gym as they were watching their teammate who they know who had struggled so much um, since the death of Kobe Bryant personally and emotionally. She'd had these struggles and they were watching her with such poise and grace give this beautiful speech that she wrote herself that really spoke from the heart. So she was feeling sick that day. She had symptoms of the flu. She actually threw up before the game. She got back to the Stanford um, at 4.30 in the afternoon. The game was at six o'clock. She didn't come out for warmups. Uh, that had never happened before. Even um, on the day that Kobe Bryant died, they were playing up in Corvallis, and she stayed behind. She came out kind of at the very last minute for warm-ups in that game. So no one really knew what to expect of her, and the, everyone felt like there was a lot of pressure on her. And then she had this amazing night. I mean, with every shot, it was just amazing. It was amazing to watch. That same day, she, a letter that she wrote to the Players' Tribune called Dear Oregon Basketball was published, and it was this beautifully written letter talking about how Coach Kelly Graves, her freshman year at Oregon, had said that they had this goal of four in four. They wanted to get to the final four within four years. And they've had two Elite Eight appearances and one final four. So 
they've definitely gotten to where they wanted to be. She said her freshman year, when he, she heard that, she thought, oh, I'm not too confident we'll get there, but we'll give it a shot. So um, that was interesting to read as well. Now, last year, she wrote a letter to the Pre- Players' Tribune as well called A Letter to Ducks Nation, and that was when everyone was speculating on whether or not she'd come back for her senior year or declare for the WNBA draft. She called that unfinished business that they had, and so she wanted to come back for her senior year, and she has in a monster way. So... This weekend is senior weekend, which is when they honor the players who are seniors and who are moving on. So that includes Sabrina and Ruthie Hebert. Minion Moore was a transfer from USC, just came in this year and has been phenomenal. And so she'll be graduating as well. And then Satu Sabali is a junior at Oregon. She did declare for the WNBA draft last year, which means she's done after this year. And they are letting her participate in senior weekend. So um, I actually spoke with Satu yesterday and... And she said she was really honored and excited to be able to be there for Senior Weekend. She feels um, like Ruthie and Sabrina and now Minion are part of her peer group. She never felt like she was younger than them or or couldn't do as well as them because they were older. So she felt like it's really fitting to um, participate in Senior Weekend. So uh, the final home game for the regular season is Sunday. It's been sold out for weeks. And they do have the Pac-12 tournament in Las Vegas, which begins next Thursday. But for all you Duck fans out there, it's not the last chance to see this tremendous team this year because the Ducks will be hosting the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament in March. So, And just a a couple quick notes on the future. Apparently, Oregon has the top-ranked 2020 recruiting class. They have five elite student-athletes coming in. This group is ranked number one in the nation by ESPN, so it gives the program its first-ever top-ranked recruiting class. Wow. (laughs) So we're losing some pretty big names, but Man, I mean, there's still some great things to come. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the Oregon State women. They're ranked number 16 right now. They will get a slot in the NCAA tournament. They could do well in the Pac-12 tournament, so we'll be keeping our eye on them. And then the men, Oregon State needs to win five or six games here at the end of the season to get into the NCAA tournament. Not super likely. Um, However, Oregon is number 14. They're in a three-way tie for second in the Pac-12. Today is Thursday. Tonight is the Civil War basketball game, and so we'll see how they do tonight. will be um, interesting to see how the Oregon Ducks fare against the Beavers. The Beavers beat the Ducks when they met earlier this month in Corvallis. So lots going on. Finally, throw in one other thing in there. Oregon softball is started off the season 14-0, and 0, which is wow. pretty what? amazing. So That's there could be another group of women <laughs> wearing green and gold that we are watching right down the road so fun fun stuff some good news coming out of eugene and corvallis definitely something to keep an eye on it's nice to have this good news it's like regularly inspiring to read it so i I like it (laughs) it's a nice break from coronavirus okay you're listening to the northwest passage on klcc support for klcc's northwest passage is provided by columbia bank Columbia Bank team members have experience in the unique challenges of multiple industries, from healthcare to manufacturing. Learn more about their services for the business community at ColumbiaBank.com. Columbia Bank, where relationships rule, member FDIC. This is the Northwest Passage. I'm Rachel McDonald with Ani Katz, Love Cross, and Chris Lehman. And it's time for us to talk about something else that we've been noticing this week in the news. 
Uh, do you want to start, Love? Sure. So I heard this week on Hidden Brain on Morning Edition, an interesting little piece by Shankar Vedantham. And they always pull up things that it's kind of like you only hear this on NPR. And so I, they always catch my attention. And this year, they talked about a research study that basically focused on how asking a stranger for help can be stressful. And this new research shows that people are mo- more likely to say yes than we often think. They're, they're studying our understated ability to influence others. And so what that what they did is they sent people out to collect survey responses. But before they did that, they had these people estimate how many people they would get to actually say, okay, I'll complete your survey. And people always underestimated how many people would say, yeah, sure, I'll help you out with that. And they said it's because people focus on their own anxieties when they know they have to go ask someone for something that might be uncomfortable they think oh they're just going to say no and it's because our own anxieties and insecurities influence how we think other people will respond but what we don't take into account is that other people are also feeling anxious and insecure by turning someone away so it's this (laughs) egocentric bias so it's saying you know if you're afraid to ask someone for something maybe consider the the other person in that situation and they might just say yes and so it was a really interesting study that people just kind of had a lot of self-doubt and then they went out and did something and thought wow that wasn't as hard as i thought so um they they likened it to asking someone out on a date and not being not wanting to do that because oh i'm sure they'll say no (laughs) and then you know you don't know until you try but you are putting that other person in a very similar situation so it's funny i like i feel like as a parent especially like you know you always tell your kids to try new stuff and you don't know what they're going to say just ask and now it's like i'm backed up by shankar (laughs) that's right you have to try you You have to try npr (laughs) says that you don't know what the answer is going to be so just try yes absolutely (laughs) yeah Chris, how about you? Well, I saw a story this week that sounds like it's right out of the Pacific Northwest, which uh, it is, uh, just not Oregon. It took place up in Washington near a town of Castle Rock, which is kind of at the base of Mount St. Helens along I-5. But there was apparently a a sea lion that had wandered inland quite a long ways. Now, they, they certainly do come up rivers, and the Columbia River especially, but also the Cowlitz River in that area. But this one had gone even further and made its way up some um, some little creeks and eventually got into a residential neighborhood and was going up and down the street oh, yeah. making a lot of noise. Oh, no. And uh, the Oregonian reported that the the sheriff's department was called out and they thought a long time, you know, what do we do with this thing? I mean, uh, they certainly hoped it would just turn around and and go back on its own, Uh, but it had other ideas. So eventually when daylight uh, came, they they sort of herded it uh, using some like plywood uh, boards and forming a little wall. Um, and herding it down a little lane into the back of somebody's pickup truck. I mean, they had a cage in there. So they had a little ramp, and it went up the ramp. And uh, it was apparently very healthy, but uh, very large, and uh, not something to be trifled with. Um, and, and so then they drove it uh, 14 miles, if you can believe it, back to the Columbia River. And it, it was last seen happily splashing about in the river. Uh, <laughs> oh so my all's, all's well that ends well. But it was, it was quite the scene there in Castle Rock, Washington this week. 
I would have flipped out if I saw a sea lion on my vlog. That would have been awesome. Just like on a trail. Oh my god! Yeah, I saw the Can photos. You yeah, no, that's uh-uh. crazy. I think your eyes would think they were deceiving. Totally. You. Yeah. Totally. That's awesome. That's They're loud too. Well, my my last thing goes back to Sabrina Unescu. In the Register Guard editorial section, they wrote about how they had published this photograph of Sabrina after she made a three-pointer, and she had this look on her face, you know, of like, I did it, and she was kind of, you know, yeah. Um, And the Register Guard received letters from readers that were, here I'm going to quote, we were flooded not with celebratory letters, emails, or calls lauding this special athlete. No, it was taken that her fiery look, her contorted face, was making her look, wait for it, ugly. And so this Register Guard, um, this editorial is just talking about the double standard for women in sports that continues, where if a man has a look of, you know, competitiveness and anger and like yeah I did it that's fine you know but when a woman has a look on her face that's not pretty the reaction is something to the effect of you should smile more I was impressed by the register guard for making this statement of you know what this is not okay and um, also just it isn't okay you know so I guess that I'm was... glad there's not like a camera in the studio with me in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Catch some not nice looks on yeah, my face. Yeah. Uh, so finally, pour one out for Taylor's Bar and Grill. It's closed. <laughs> the OLCC revoked the bar's license last week, citing 42 documented serious incidents from June 2017 to June 2019. Taylor's has faced years of complaints and problems, including documented rapes, druggings from behind the bar by employees, and assaults. My cousin, a junior at the U of O, was at Taylor's on their last night, and he said it was totally packed. So the bar has served students, alumni, and Eugenians for nearly a century. At least it got a send-off. Bye, Taylor. I know. I mean, I know, you know. Cheers. I, yeah, I can mm-hmm. honestly say I'm, I'm a duck, and I've, I've never been in Taylor's. Mm. Sorry. Yeah, I think I maybe went in there once when yeah. I was a student. You know, it's a great space right there on campus. I mean, I hope it gets turned into something really fabulous and has a better reputation. Yes. Um, I mean, it really is some great real estate right on the corner oh, right of campus the corner. right there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's just right across the street from the main entrance mm-hmm. to campus. Right so. across from the duck store. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Get your gear, go have a beer. And it was there for nearly 100 years. That part, I actually have to say, I did not know that it was that old. So it is sad when an institution closes, something that's been around for that long. But I think we've basically only heard kind of shady news about Taylor's for the mm-hmm. last few years. So um, sounds like it was time for, it's time for a, a little bit of a facelift. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for the Northwest Passage. I'm KLCC News Director, Rachel McDonald. I'm Morning Edition host, Ani Katz. I'm Weekend Edition host, Monday Morning Edition host, and resident sports reporter, Love Cross. <laughs> and I'm reporter Chris Lehman. Bye. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC, 